I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. In today's program, we catch up in the field with our opening speaker at the upcoming National Strip-Tillage Conference to learn more about his farming philosophy and for a preview of his conference presentation. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, and monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, farmers are used to overcoming adversity, and in recent years, have forced many to be increasingly resourceful and resilient with their farm management. Opportunity can take many forms, but the key is recognizing and pursuing it when it arises. Since transitioning his Lake Mills, Iowa corn and soybean operation to 100% strip-till in late 2011, Ben Peterson has pursued a deeper understanding of the progressive benefits and public influences that are shaping the conservation tillage landscape. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Ben in the field to chat about his holistic approach to strip-till and why farmers should be thinking outside of the box to keep their operations on a pathway to profitability. Ben, appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, understand you're out in the field taking care of some application needs and obviously coming off of planting here, making sure that uh, the, the crop is, is progressing uh, as you'd like to see. How are things looking out in your area? Uh, I guess funny year all the way around. I don't certainly mean to use that word to uh, incite anybody from the Eastern Corn Belt because I've certainly heard and seen about uh, some of the uh, uh, much bigger challenges that are being had out there. But overall, uh, you know, we might even be getting a little bit on the dry side right now. Uh, some chances of rain here the next couple of days. Uh, but, you know, fair-looking crop, I guess, as far as my experience goes so far around here. So in terms of, I guess, how, how things went on your farm this spring, um, you know, obviously I had a chance to get around uh, the early part of uh, of April and into May as well, and in some different areas, you know, and it was kind of kind of varied. I mean, some folks uh, were having a better time of it than others, um, you know. But from what you saw, I guess, in terms of your your strip till fields, you know, what what were you, you know, what were conditions like out there once you were able to get out and plant? Well, we had to start uh, in conditions that were definitely suboptimal. We were pushed into May. We usually like to get started mid-April. Uh, wet weather pushed us into May. We chose not to plant ahead of a, a snow event late April. I think we're yet, it's yet to be seen whether that was a wise decision or not. That corn is tasseling uh, as we speak that was planted before that snow. Uh, again, we'll see. Uh, I think, uh, you know, how I've geared our strip-till system, we're able to deal with uh, some adverse conditions fairly well, uh, doing things that allow us to plant when and, and and not pay the sin tax that occurs 
when sometimes we're out there a little bit too early. I guess I'm happy with the results. There's definitely things I want to tweak going forward uh, because we, and it's something I can get, I'll get into uh, uh, at my talk out at Strip Deal Conference, but we, we massively changed things uh, from last year uh, to this year uh, on the Strip Deal machine and planner front, and we knew we'd have some growing pains, didn't know we'd be quite under fire like we were <laughs> uh, to get those things adjusted. I mean, we're 48-hour stretches with, four to six hours of sleep, and given the situation, I don't think it could have gone much better. Mm-hmm. When, and Ben, I know you've gotten into the practice uh, about 2012, getting into strip till, and I know you've, you've always kind of taken a very thoughtful approach uh, in terms of the decisions you're making within your strip till system, and obviously kind of putting some purpose behind those changes that you make, and, and you had alluded to the fact that some of those can be pretty dramatic, but obviously, you know, with the intention uh, of changing your system, you know, for the better. Um, you know, some of those early years, you know, are, are there things you kind of learned and, and adapted to as you were, uh, you know, incorporating uh, and, and adopting a strip-till system in, into your corn and soybean operation? Absolutely. Uh, you just, you never get it exactly right out of the chute. And, you know, to be honest with you, Jack, I'm not, I don't feel like we're where I want to be yet. Uh, you know, some things are, you know, nitrogen uh, form and timing, uh, was something I definitely tweaked. I went away from dry fertilizer, uh, urea right away, just because I liked handling ability and I liked uh, a more accurate placement that liquid provided. Uh, again, uh, I went back to a little dry fertilizer this year, <laughs> doing both liquid and dry this time, though, uh, because there was there were some other values I wanted to try and capture. Again, jury's still out whether we did that or not. Um, and uh, planner-wise, uh, we've made some adjustments as well. But I'll say this, and I, don't, I certainly don't mean to toot my own horn or brag, but when I was going into strip till, much like many other guys of my generation, you know, I had a, a dad who was very entrenched in the old ways of doing things, had a lot of success with doing it mm-hmm. uh, the way he's done it. And I just, when I knew I was going to take the jump, buy this strip till machine on, on credit I could barely get at the time, I knew I had to knock it out of the park. I knew there couldn't be a fatal flaw uh, or else that would be my last year of strip tilling. And so I really researched hard. I talked to uh, a lot of a lot of folks with experience uh, with the system and uh, really made sure guidance was in place, really made sure that the machine wasn't going to be an issue. And I couldn't recommend that more strongly to anybody that's looking to make uh, the same jump that I did. Yeah, that's interesting. You bring up kind of a, a dynamic that I think is certainly, you know, present, and, and we've seen that, um, you know, at, at the Strip Till Conference with, uh, you know, kind of the multi-generational uh, attendee, and, and we've seen, you know, kind of the the uncle and, and dad coming with their son uh, or offspring, and it's obviously evident, you know, visiting farms where you, you will see some of, uh, you know, that, that shift in, in the approach to uh, a system and, and obviously incorporating some different practices and, and that's that's a challenge. I mean that can be difficult I think but uh, you know in your case obviously you you took that that leap you know kind of made that commitment uh, you know a number of years ago and um, you know have have been able to uh, you know obviously kind of build build off of some of those those early returns that you saw. Yeah, absolutely. I, it it I remember I posted it was a Facebook post. I took a picture of my machine as I was about ready to, to uh, head out to the field for the first time in the fall of 2011, and I just simply captioned it. It's either the best 
or the worst thing I will ever do professionally. <laughs> and I was right. And, and fortunately, it was the best. Uh, there's just been so many uh, un, un, unintended, unexpected positives that have come from making that change. Um, you know, I really got into strip till because I was in love with the idea of, hey, let's get more efficient with nutrient placement. Let's make a spot for each plant uh, to grow and thrive where it doesn't have a wheel track to fight, where it's got an equal shot of fertilizer everywhere. Uh, but in the course of implementing things, I realized, hey, my soil's changing for the better. Uh, I'm getting more biology. Uh, my marginal uh, soils are getting more and more productive. So it's it, it definitely was something for me where I got in expecting the, uh, a certain amount of benefits and uh, they multiplied as as time went on, which is what was more than I could hope for at the time. We'll get back to our discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible, and welcome in Dr. Ray Acevedo former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture. In this week's technology tips from Dr. Ray, he offers some insight into some of the shortcomings of early sensor technology, along with some recent improvements, which will be a focal point of his dinner presentation at the 2019 National Strip Tillage Conference. I think one of the, the questions, probably the big question that a lot of farmers have, um, you know, is is just the ROI and, and how do they apply, you know, some of these technologies that, that are out there, uh, you know, in particular when we're talking about some of the sensing technologies. Um, I know that's an area that, that, you know, you've got a lot of passion for, done a lot of work in, and, and I uh, would guess, you know, that that's going to be an area you'll be touching on uh, during the, the dinner presentation on uh, Thursday night at the conference. Absolutely, Jack. We'll have a lot of in-depth conversations about where sensor technologies have been, what their failures have been, why why in the past, why haven't they been really adopted all that well mm -hmm. up to this point. And a lot of it had to do right around that ROI subject. And, you know, for the most part, sensor technologies out there are relatively disconnected, so to speak. You spend $20,000 on a, on a sensor outfit, optical sensors for your sprayer. Um, but it didn't talk to anything but your sprayer and it's difficult to use the data and you could only really utilize it for one thing on the farm. It's hard to get a return on the investment when you can only use the sensor technology for one thing. But the fun thing we'll be talking about during a presentation during the dinner, you know, while everybody's eating a steak, is, is that how things are changing thanks to the internet of things and connectivity being enabled on the agricultural space. It's, it's really breathing new life into sensor technologies. And then the advantage is also with, you know, it's been 10 years since a lot of these optical sensor technologies were developed. Believe it or not, uh, we've, we've improved the process and it's actually gotten cheaper to, to make them. So the sensors themselves are cheaper. So we're looking at entire connected farms getting sensors to deliver all that data seamlessly to the cloud, cloud back to the to the tractor, the sprayer, but then also direct local area network machine to machine communication. You start having, whether it's your drones or your four wheeler or a guy on a bike driving through the field, that sensor is relaying his data back to the sprayer where it needs to go so it can provide agronomic input. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Ben Peterson, who talks about the trending interest and adoption of regenerative agriculture and its impact in the public eye. 
Well, and Ben, I know you've you've mentioned too. I mean, there's a lot of public influences now, kind of shaping the the conservation tillage landscape. Um, you know, a lot of external uh, and and also you know some internal factors that um, you know are, are obviously kind of weighing on the minds of a lot of farmers, and particularly you know when you have folks that are in you know, the no-till or strip-till practice, um, you know, how well positioned, you know, do you see those segments being, you know, in terms of either being ahead of the curve or at least keeping up with the curve in terms of some of the, those practices that we see a lot more uh, maybe in the headlines of, of kind of this, your average consumer publication? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if a farmer has made, take, taken steps to reduce tillage and taken steps to be more efficient with nutrient applications, uh it, that they're in an excellent excellent position going forward um i think the value statement for doing it is something that's been understated uh because uh, i i recently rebranded our farm uh vital grains and it's something i'll get into in my presentation you know why i did that and what and what what does it mean what was i driving at and really uh to give uh, just a brief overview, it's the fact that I started to realize in talking to, uh, like, Raton Lull, uh, Ohio State University, who actually returned my phone call, and we had a great talk about carbon sequestration and researching, you know, how much soil is actually moved or lost when we're talking broad, uh, broad area tillage uh, in with only average rainfall events. And need, I don't need to remind everybody that we've had a well above average rainfall events uh, over the past few years. So the amount of soil that's displaced is massive. Uh, you know, all the way down to hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico. Water quality uh, discussions. The Des Moines Register just talked about uh, really, it wasn't really a hit piece, but it was not favorable uh, mm-hmm. in discussing the, uh, uh, nitrates in water and what our role is. So um, as we go forward, as we have a political pendulum that is wildly swinging left to right, where do we want to be? Because I don't think it's too long before somebody that is well-intentioned thinks they're going to get uh, in the business of us, quote-unquote, poor dumb farmers, and tell us how to do things. Uh, that is not necessarily going to make dollars and cents. So I think we have a tremendous opportunity right now to sell what is commonly becoming called as called regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. And the benefits, the quantifiable benefits that come along with that really dwarf other labels that have gained a lot of value, uh, organic, non-GMO. You dig into those things, the value statement is somewhat dubious but what does it give it gives people a sense of hey we're doing the right thing and that hunger for hey we're doing the right thing we're being socially responsible with the products we purchase uh it's it's huge and it's growing uh with this younger generation of consumers Absolutely. Well, and, and it does seem that, you know, perception is playing a, a bigger role now, uh, you know, particularly in agriculture and, uh, you know, obviously with, with what farmers are, are kind of facing and obviously some of the challenges and, and also being able to, uh, you know, stay profitable and, and obviously be conscious of, you know, passing that farmland on to their next generation. I mean, there's there's a lot of 
factors that are kind of coming into play now, uh, perhaps more more than ever. But you know, a lot of it is also uh, you know getting more publicized, and I think becoming more visible uh, as a whole. So obviously, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, kind of taking ownership, having that responsibility, um, you know, are, are elements that uh, are certainly going to going to figure into you know kind of the longevity and sustainability, you know, of of uh, farm operations as we move forward. Absolutely. You know, us farmers, uh, especially ones that, you know, there's a pretty arbitrary term, but, but do a good job that you can tell, take a lot of pride in their work, uh, that it's just, it's more than a profession. Um, that land that they hold is just, is more than an asset. And, you know, I definitely fall in that category. I mean, my family, um, we, we kind of want to stick to our, our own business. You know, we, we, we take, we have so, such a massive investment in time and money uh, in what we do. We're, it's very easy for us to kind of navel gaze and and think only of where our operation sits today and how to defend it for uh, for the future. I think we need to take a little more of an outward look because uh, not only are there threats out there, there's opportunities um, that I think. And again, farmers banding together, kind of coming together under one banner, under a, one flag is, people have dreamed about that forever. And it's it's tough because we're independent-minded, uh, kind of free-thinking people. But um, there are some opportunities, uh, and I think they could be big, uh, especially under this regenerative uh, label, uh, doing things like implementing cover crops, reducing tillage, reducing nutrient applications, chemical applications. Uh, that could mean real value and real power to operations that uh, are doing those type of things for the future. Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, th- those are all you know critically important topics that I think are are certainly worth bringing top of mind. And and uh, looking forward to to having you out at the conference uh, in a couple of weeks here. Uh, I know there's going to be a lot of food for thought. I'm sure you're going to challenge some folks uh, in the audience to uh, you know think progressively, think a little bit outside the box, and and maybe even get out of their comfort zone. But uh, very much looking forward to uh, to having you kick off the event uh, in Peoria uh, on August 1st, and. Uh, uh, appreciate uh, that you'll you'll be there to join us thanks jack i mean it's going to be a big honor for me to talk to uh a great number of uh peers who i have a lot of respect for um uh, i just yeah I, I if i can cause people to think differently about one or two things uh in their operation and, and more so like how where we fit into the food chain going forward, you know, with regard to the things we've discussed here, then that that's all I hope to do. And aside from that, I really hope to learn from some of the other presenters. Well, thank you, Ben, for sharing some insight into your strip-till philosophy and a few of the things you will be elaborating on during your opening presentation at the 2019 National Strip-Tillage Conference in Peoria, Illinois, on August 1st. Again, we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. 
And a reminder, you can keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. And a reminder that you can check out more information on striptillfarmer.com slash NSTC for Ben's upcoming presentation and the full agenda for the 2019 National Strip Tillage Conference. For Ben Peterson, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>